Bonjour et bienvenue dans Stuff We've Seen. C'est Jim. Et maintenant, le voici le bâtard de Tadagérien lui-même. Tire. Comment ça va, mon pote? I didn't really even know a lick of French, but in the last few weeks, <laughs> I picked it all up from watching. <laughs> I actually, there there were parts where I, uh, I I started to understand what, there were certain words that I, uh, <laughs> yeah. that I got that were <laughs> repeated enough that I started to pick up, uh, yeah, I started to pick up some certain words. Yeah, I mean, basically it was, you know, I was introducing stuff we've seen, it's me, and now here he is. <laughs> The bastard Targaryen himself, <laughs> Teal. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, buddy? I don't, I don't, I, I don't understand. Uh, I, I don't understand Game of Thrones jokes because uh, you've seen Game. I don't of know Thrones. if I'm ever going to watch House of the Dragon. You are. You you're going to do is like five years later because you now like the binge more than you like the week to week. It's true. I I can't. Uh, I, I I don't know. I just did the Better Call Saul. I'm taking a little break from TV, yes, because I don't know that anything is going to be better than that. <laughs> yes, no, no, it's good, and you're not a big TV person anyway. And then now your full concentration could be on movies, and of course that's what we've been working on these last few weeks. We said it a few yes. episodes ago that uh, we were working on a special Jean Luc Godard tribute episode. Yes. And here it is. Um, and now, of course, before we even begin that, I have to go down a quick rabbit hole. And I apologize, oh, but it's great. timely. Okay. Well, okay. But so, and again, we won't get into it too much. We'll try not to, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. But a week ago, uh, my uncle, Phil, passed away. Uh, he was my dad's identical twin brother. My, my father passed away 10 years ago. Um, so he was sort of like the kind of visual and audio <laughs> embodiment of yeah. my dad. Um, he didn't live near me, uh, so I didn't see him too often. He'd come back when he could, like once a year in Massachusetts, and there'd be like a quick reunion, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, he had a massive stroke, and, and he died, and he was in really bad health. But when I was a kid... He, he When I was growing up in Massachusetts, he lived there till I was about 10, then he moved away. Um, I think I've mentioned him in past episodes, but he did happen to take me uh, to the movies a few times, but there were some very specific movies that had huge impacts. Uh, and I've mentioned them before, but he took me and my sister to see The Empire Strikes Back in 70 millimeter in Boston. It was my first 70 millimeter film experience. Um, and it was just something that, you know, the movie itself is whatever, uh, you know, I like it as much as anybody else, but it was the experience that was so impactful. And then another time, him and my dad, my mom must have had to go somewhere. And so they took my sister and I, which was very rare, to the movies to see the Muppet movie. Oh. And I just, you know, that I have a very distinct memory of. It's Tracy. Prepare the standard rich and famous contract for Kermit the Frog and Company. And then when I lived in L.A., my freshman year of college, I went to USC, 
and it was like our spring break or something. And he invited me one weekend. He didn't know if I'd even want to see something like this was when they had the restored version of Lawrence of Arabia playing. Oh, I remember when that was out. Yeah. And I got to see it at this, it's, it's no longer in existence, this gorgeous theater that was in LA and, you know, 70 millimeter and like people, they weren't like dressed up in suits the way they used to be. But I mean, I felt like the crowd was really, there was somewhat of an older crowd that were reliving their childhoods, but people were dressed up nice. And the whole entire experience, it really was like kind of movie wise, life altering for me. <laughs> Uh, and what what was the theater? Um, God, I think it was in Century City. It, it was one of these big theaters, not the not the multiplex there, but it was around the corner. And I don't remember what it was called, but I, you know, maybe it was yes. a Century Plaza or something. Yes, I saw Apocalypse Now Redux there. Okay, yeah, see, that was one that was still there, and it was a pretty big theater. Yeah, yeah, it was a really nice theater. And so, you know, those were those are just big memories that I had and then I still have. And so, you know, when I think of family members, often I think of the movie experiences we have with them. And so, you know, it's a quick little tribute to the old uh, Uncle Phil, uh, wherever he is now. <laughs> so uh, that was that. And uh, now we're going to get okay. into Godar. And I think this is what's interesting as we approach it. Uh, I don't know about you, but. Godard, I mean, I knew him, right? We all know him. And, uh, yeah. you know, it, like we had talked about just in the kid episodes that we just did that, you know, everybody, you can't leave film school without seeing Breathless. Well, I had mentioned that as being an essential <laughs> on my list. And you had said, eh, it's not that good a movie. Well, I, you know what? And I still don't I, think it's I was for thinking, kids. No, I think it's for high school kids. Okay. Uh, and it's, it's definitely not a kid's movie, but I feel like. You know, how I had mentioned eight and a half, and I feel like for the artsy alternative kid who's into not necessarily the latest action movies. But the other thing is, uh, I don't know, I'm all over the place on guitar well, right well, now. So we'll bump, but on the Breathless, right? So uh, I wasn't even going to rewatch it. Uh, that was one of my things. I was like, I've got too many other you things. hated it so much. Yeah, I was like, I've seen it. I don't remember it very much, but whatever. And- I've got a bunch of other things to see because I had only seen a couple. I had seen Breathless. I had seen Contempt. Yeah. I had seen Sympathy for the Devil. Um, that I saw in film school. And then the only other one that I had seen was Masculine Feminine, which I also saw in film school. And I had zero recollection of the movie. And I'm pretty sure I fell asleep in it. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean i i really was it was embarrassing right that to not see a lot of godard movies so while while we're circling around this what was your earliest exposure to godard like when did you first hear about him and what was the first one you saw well okay so you know prepare yourself dear listener um just like godard where he edits time and, and jumps all around <laughs> that's what's going to be and then if you suddenly hear weird noises like car honks uh bullet shots and other things <laughs> then once you i love how he leaves those in and sometimes like one person's dialogue will have the background noise and then the other person there's no room tone uh there's just it's like they've dubbed it and so there's completely different background sound on based on who's talking one of the themes that i've noticed because they, they I, I when i went through this huge undertaking in the last couple of weeks i focused mostly on the 60s yeah and 
you hear this constantly. You, I mean, there's constant traffic sounds and interruptions yeah. and, you know, you cut to title cards and, and, and narrations and all sorts of things. But I finally broke down and had to do some searching to understand what were all these sound effects about. Yeah. And again, part of the Godard process is he, when he sits down in the edit, he looks at the images without any sound on. Before it's, yeah. even though it's synced, he doesn't want to hear it. Then he also then listens back and hears just the sound without the visuals. And then he starts right. to make some ideas and assumptions. And sometimes if there was a mistake, just like how he would do the jump edit, he would yeah. also sometimes mask mistakes or something that was in the background sound with an exaggerated sound. Right. And other times he just likes <laughs> sounds to break up break up things. He just likes to break stuff up. There's a quote from Godard that I think suits this moment well, which is, uh, I'll paraphrase it poorly. This is the moment where Teal paraphrases poorly. Uh, but basically, sometimes you have to listen to the picture and see the sound. Mm, yeah. And that's exactly what he's doing. And, you know, it's kind of a simple thing and it sounds a little clever, but the more I thought about it, I thought that's really interesting that he's using sound, not just as something you listen to, but he's cutting sound the way you would cut picture. And he's cutting picture the way you might cut sound. Uh, the, the relationship between sound and picture is very different than sort of any other filmmaker. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, that's good or bad, right? Good or bad. He does things that no other filmmaker ever did. <laughs> now, it's 1980. And I had just moved from the town of Lexington, Massachusetts to Woburn, Massachusetts. So this is the fall of uh, 1979. And I met uh, this friend that we were good friends for the remainder of grade school and then started to drift apart in junior high. And then by high school, we were more acquaintances. Uh, my friend was named Glenn Goddard. Okay. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Right. And it was Goddard, not Goddard, Goddard, but it's spelled right. the exact same way. And the uh, November of 1980, so I'd been, you know, living in Woburn now for a year. Uh, I'm opening up my movie section that I would pour through religiously. And whether or not I was interested in any of these movies, I like made mental notes of all the different films. Yeah. And I noticed this film and I would see occasional um, ads for, and it was this movie called Every Man for Himself. And yes. it was this guy directed by Jean-Luc Godard. And of course, the name yes, caught- name in big letters. Yeah, yeah, and the name caught my attention because it was like, oh, my friend Glenn Goddard. And of course, you know, I think I'd ask my mom <laughs> about it. Oh, he was this famous French guy and he made this movie Breathless, right? Um, but what also caught my attention was this was not a smut movie. And back then, like- after you would get to the back of the movie section, not in the Globe, but in the Herald, <laughs> which was the other paper, oh. they would they would list all the nudity houses, um, and you'd see. You <laughs> That's know, funny. They actually had those in the paper. Oh yeah, um, you know. Well, you know, advertising pays, right? For the paper. So, yep. <laughs> uh, so here's this film that is like a real film going to a real theater, and it says rated X. Right. And I just was confounded by this, right? 
I just, you know, I was only 10 and I'm like, I right, just right, couldn't. Right. So for years, because of that, right, every man for himself just stuck in my brain and kind of in the way in the back cobwebs, oh, I'd like to see that movie someday. And then you just forget about it. And then this opportunity with Godard and, you know, for people who have Criterion Channel should know that uh, once he passed away, Criterion they always seem to have a few Godard titles. Available. Yeah, they do, but they really went all out for this. They put in their whole collection of stuff, and one of the titles was Every Man for Himself. And so even though I relegated myself mostly to the 60s, I jumped to Every Man for Himself, which is 1980, um, partly yeah. because I was intrigued, not only because I got to find out why was this rated X, two, it's been regarded in interviews, Godard said it, himself it was like his first new film again he 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 felt like it was a new start for him the 70s he was kind of doing uh left-wing agitprop communist propaganda essay films yeah and you know what it, it, it limited the audience <laughs> it kind of limited the audience yeah and i gotta say they're not you know they're they're not pleasurable to watch yeah and you know what that that were that was becoming that was creeping into more and more of his work as the sixties went on. And I will yes. say that it was my least interesting stuff to me only because I felt like one of the flaws that I find watching these uh, movies, that they're not very plot heavy. Um, and a lot right. of them were made up like, you know, the actors are saying their own things and he kind of sets the scene and they, they go and say stuff. And then occasionally plot happens. I find that a lot of times he fills their words or narration words with a lot of that uh, Marxist uh, philosophy. And my whole thing is, is if you're trying to make a point, well, it would be more interesting if you could show it in a story. Right. You could dramatize that point instead of just having somebody lecture on Marx in the middle of your movie, which, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's a, it's a little, uh, it, it, I think this was something Godard really struggled with in terms of how to the relationship between politics and cinema and he wanted a more political cinema but sometimes he went about it in this really clumsy way those are the flaws in him as a filmmaker so what was the first one you saw after seeing that movie uh in the paper after seeing every man for himself advertised the x the first one i would have seen is is, is breathless okay i saw breathless in film school and i I, this is my recollection. I know I saw it at NYU, and I I, yeah. I don't know exactly when it was, but I feel like either right after I saw it or, or probably before, I was telling you that I had to see it for the film class that I was going to be in. And again, this is just my recollection. It could be wrong. I felt like you had mentioned that you had seen this gorgeous reversal print of Breathless and that you know that was just the color, like the black and white. It was just so yeah. glowing and uh, amazing. Um, and then I saw a, a clunky, you know, grainy sixteen millimeter print, <laughs> scratched up. Which NYU yeah. was a film school that didn't necessarily always have the greatest film library in the quality. Well, yeah, and also they would run them a lot. Exactly. So, you know, the prints were not in the best condition. Plus also, that was another thing, and this is what's been great about the Criterion Channel. You know, we're talking like 1989, 90. The whole, you know, all the tools for restoration 
they weren't really happening yet. I mean, they, it would be a laborious process. So before digital came around to create, you know, digital restorations of films, people still loved movies, even if the prints that they saw were kind of crappy. I remember seeing a, uh, a restored Vertigo in the 90s. I did too. Yep. And that was pretty impressive. And it looked great, but it looks even better now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and that's what I've discovered. I mean, I think what's really made this exercise worthwhile is that these prints that you're going to watch on criteria, they're the, like, you know, the best these movies probably ever yeah, looked. They're the best they've looked. Yeah. And they do look fantastic for the most part. Yeah. And so I, you know, I mean, I was going along with all of these major films and watching them and then getting intrigued. Uh, the more and more I went in, bouncing around throughout the decade. And I finally got to a place where I saw these films that I committed myself to watching and felt like, you know what? I think I got to go back now <laughs> and watch this right. Breathless. Um, and so, you know, here, I am always uh, willing to say when I'm wrong on something, <laughs> and that's what I discovered with because I, I I won't uh, I won't milk it. Yeah, well, no, I mean that's the whole thing. <laughs> I feel when people will never admit to being not being wrong, but like being willing yeah. to change their opinion, reevaluate. Um, that's not a good person. <laughs> So Breathless was a reevaluation for you. Yeah. And it, and it really, this one impacted me. It doesn't mean I like love it as like a movie, like, oh man, this movie's so great. It's one of my favorites. It's just that I think about, it was filmed in 59. It comes out in 60. And when I watch this movie and it's gorgeous, perfect, pristine print. Yeah. I see all the things that were going on. Some of it was accidents. I mean, he was making it up as he went along. And and, and so the accidents, you know, the, the editing was really led on by the fact that they just didn't have a ton of money and they had to string things together. Right. And then he sort of, as they, as they started doing that, he saw something in the ability to tell a story a little differently. Yeah. And through, well, I don't know. I, it, it, he, just in terms of the story structure- Breathless was uh, the beginning of these, uh, and there's many of these across all his films, of these incredibly long scenes or sequences between a man and a woman in one room. Yes. And that stunned me the first time I saw Breathless, because it's unlike anything you've ever seen, because nobody, everyone does three-minute scenes, right? And to just let it play in this really loose way where it kind of feels like they're the first time I watched breathless. Anyway, I felt what is going, I felt lost in time. I felt sort of unstuck during that sequence. Like I, when is this ever going to end? Is this the rest of the movie is it, we're so used to a story has to serve the plot. Yeah. And to just hang out with the characters for an extended period of time and sort of let them, you know, the conversation is not as tight or pointed as it is in most movies. And there's just this very sort of natural looseness to it, which is when you first go into that, you're imp I, I was anyway, very impatient with it. And I was probably too. I mean, I, again, a lot of people would use the word bored, right? Yeah. And that's where through this last few weeks of watching these, I'm not saying that I wasn't not bored sometimes uh, or that I had to stop repeatedly on these and kind of come back to them. Because again, without the plot to kind of move you through, 
it's a little bit hard, um, but it's kind of wor- yeah. it's kind of like a good mental exercise. Once you're aware that that's what's going on and that's what it's going to be like, and this is what you're getting, you kind of give up on those expectations and are able to take the film for what it is. Also, in another, you know, again, I'm looking at not now, but in 1960. The conversations that these two are having, there's a lot of talk about sex, very frank discussions that you could not have in an American film. The code, the Hayes Code, basically ended in 54. And so this is only six years after the code ended, and American movies were still basically operating in code mode. Yeah, because the studio still controlled it. I mean, and that's another thing, right? If you think about if if you're a person who wants to be a filmmaker- in 1960, you're an American uh, filmmaker who's going to one of the very few films programs out there. And suddenly yeah. you see this movie that is shot, again, handheld in lo- yeah. real locations, which I think is also the, one of the most fascinating aspects of Godard's work is the ability to see France in a different way. Yes, Absolutely. And you see, so you see this camera out in the street moving. Uh, a lot of times you'll actually see the re- the real people on the street. They didn't have any permits and they're all like looking over like, what the hell's going on? Sometimes he actually, there's a, there's a point in a woman is a woman where he actually just cuts away to shots of people staring at the camera. He like takes it, uh, you know, that was happening as they were shooting and he took it to the extreme and actually pointed out that that was happening. So this breathless, right? It, it while it feels very much like unplanned and really, you know, grab a camera and go. There was a lot of discussion and planning behind the scenes yes. uh, on the film. Uh, and first of all, much like his ca- character uh, Jean Paul Mondo, there, uh, Godard was a little bit of a uh, kind of a thief himself. He yes. he stole money from the Cahiers du Cinema in order yes. to fund Breathless. And then when the Cahiers de Cinema found out about it, they gave him more money <laughs> and they found other resources to help him. This may be apocryphal, but I, I heard this story at one point that he would uh, steal books from his parents' library. He, he stole from his parents and his friends too, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> he would steal from his parents and resell their stuff to get cash to make the movie. So there's a little, so, I mean, again, his characters are, are very, they have a lot of similarities in a lot of these characters, yes. but uh, he worked almost exclusively in the sixties with this cinematographer, uh, Raul Kutar. And yes, I, I, as the more and more of these movies I saw and the way these compositions and how, as the films went on, um, whether or not some were more successful than others, one thing was really interesting was how the cinematography got better and better. It does. And I think the thing, you know, when you look at Breathless, it can look a little chaotic and documentary style and like they're just grabbing stuff and it's kind of improvised. And then- as the films go on, you realize how meticulous and choreographed and blocked everything is. Yeah, and not as much maybe in Breathless as some of the other ones got to, but yeah, but uh, and that's why like you know the a woman is a woman. The next one is like a widescreen color movie, yeah, which is interesting. But uh, well, he had also made he made another one that I did not get to see, The Little Soldier, and yeah, I I didn't, uh, but didn't that came out a little bit. That came out later. He made that with Anna Karina first. 
However, because of the subject matter, it was banned for a few years, so it didn't come out. That's right. Until later. Okay, it didn't come out until '63. Right. But yeah. uh, so Raul Kotar, this is what's really cool. He because I, I I had to know more about Breath after I saw this movie. I kind of was blown away because um, I got it. I I like I saw how the jump cuts, like how they worked, and I actually think he improved on yeah. them in in subsequent movies. Raul Qatar, he he goes to him because Raul Qatar had done a lot of um, still photography and Godard knew his work. Godard specifically wanted to use Ilford HPS, which was a still film stock. Oh, okay. It was not a movie stock. He wanted, he was like, wow, it's Ilford. I want them to, I want to use this. And Ilford's like, yeah, well, we don't make that. As a film stock. <laughs> However, for like newsreel people and stuff, like big news right. stars, they did do these like somewhat larger roles that could be like loaded. Like you could cut, you could cut it yourself for your needs. So they'd sell it in bulk. They stitched together these shorter roles into an actual film role and did that meticulously oh, wow. to have all the film they needed. And then he had to find a camera that fit with the sprockets because they didn't have the <laughs> right. same sprockets. So he, they found this Camaflex that had the closest sprocket holes, which is why they used the specific handheld camera that they did. And then they are going to the lab and the lab couldn't handle these reels. And they're like, we're not going to, we're gonna, not going to mess with this <laughs> with our machinery. However, they had this one out of service machine that could handle it, that they put back into service. And that's how they were able to print the movie. And then they did that again for like uh, Vivre Savi. And I think that okay, like- Okay, same the, stock. Yeah. yeah. By the time they got to like a band of outsiders, the lab had just had retired that machine and they couldn't do it anymore. So they, they weren't able to film it that way. But uh, he also, uh, Raul Cotard also shot Jacques Demi's Lola on this- Film. On the stock, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so it, it, it's it's just fascinating that it, the stocks of film and even when the color, he was really meticulous of wanting to make sure the stocks could do what he visually wanted them to do. If you just watch one or two of these, you don't get you don't get how precise he was in those choices. Right. And that's why I went back. I'm like, you know, is this guy that just like, he's just casting fate to the wind and doing things he liked. And then sometimes right. he hit and other times he missed, or was he really involved on the back end really? And he was, he was thinking through this stuff. It's very well. He leaves room for those accidents, happy accidents, I think is, you know, and he leaves room for those during the filmmaking process. But I was reading an interview where the, he was asked, like, you know, is the editing the most important part of, of your films? And he said, he said, there's three really important parts when I'm making a film. Uh, the first one is uh, before I make the film when I'm planning it. The second is while I'm shooting it. And the third is while I'm editing it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's another thing about him too, right? I guess not knowing that much about him, um, when I had seen Contempt, which I saw like like ten years ago. Oh, okay. So recently, it wasn't one of the no. Early but it ones. was it was the last one I had seen until getting into this whole thing. Yeah, that you know, I'm I was like, oh, like I didn't know what kind of like I didn't I thought he was like maybe a serious filmmaker and stuff. Now that yeah. I've watched all this, every one of these is kind of in its own ways a very sly comedy. <laughs> 
Well, there's definitely, there's a full range of human emotion in most of these movies. Yeah. And humor, humor is part of that. And so is despair and heartbreak and depression and, uh, you know, but, but definitely humor and love and uh, sort of love for life and joy. All it's, he's, there's a full emotional palette going on in these movies. I forgot to mention that you should probably be breaking out your jeton or your galois at this point. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen so much smoking in my entire life. And if you have a gun, just carry it around with you while you're listening to this. Absolutely. Or a machine gun. Okay. So here's my introduction to Godard. And it wasn't breathless. No. I don't think I'd really heard of him. I think, I don't know, maybe my parents had mentioned him, but- my high school had a very limited film section. It was basically one shelf. Okay. And as a film, somebody who was interested in film, I, you know, sort of would, during study hall, I would keep going back to this shelf and pulling things off it. And so there was Eisenstein's film form and film sense. I read both of those cover to cover. Uh, I agree with Stanley Kubrick. They make no sense. <laughs> There was also a stack of Cahir de Cinema, and there, <laughs> there was the screenplay in book form for Alphaville. Mm. I had not seen the movie. I didn't know much about Godard. I'd read, I was reading the Cahiers de Cinema. Uh, it's Cahiers. Ma- mags- Cahiers, sorry. Cahiers de Cinema. Cahiers I took cinema. French, I was- thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I was reading the Cahiers de Cinema, and so I was getting into some criticism of Godard in there, uh, but I I sat down to read the screenplay to Alphaville, and it was the first screenplay I'd ever read. That's a weird one to read then. (laughs) It's a very weird one to read, but I also was kind of a science fiction guy at at that age. I still like sci-fi. So it appealed to me. I'd seen some noir films. It it, it appealed to me as sort of this sci-fi noir thing, which is what it is, Uh, but I had not seen the film, but I read the screenplay several times. I became so obsessed with the screenplay that I wanted to, to shoot it with my friends uh, my high school friends, I wanted to remake. That would have actually been based on having now seen it as part of this whole thing. That is the kind of movie that would be fun for kids to reenact. Yes, it would be totally fun. And and the story just, uh, you know, this like computer that runs this city is, <laughs> is really a great sci-fi concept. And yes, yeah, so I wanted to do a remake of Alphaville. And so then, uh, you know, later that year, I was working at a video store. So Alphaville was my first, you know, as soon as I could get my hands on it, I watched it. And I was, (laughs) you know, it, it was different from the screenplay in the sense that it uh, does all those sound editing things we were talking about. Like it has this beeping sound. (laughs) Wait, I kill, I will talk. Like the computer. Alpha 60's voice. Uh, <laughs> Which I think is John Luke Godard. It had to have been. It, it had to have been. So I watched it and I was kind of uh, kind of blown away. It was not like what I expected, which was more of a I expected the filmmaking to be more American noir type filmmaking. And it was uh, basically, it was a lot more handheld than I had been thinking. 
So I started to think of Godard as sort of this handheld improvisational type filmmaker who was kind of doing documentary style and, you know, later realized that's not entirely accurate. Uh, but then, so Breathless was my next film. And then my third Godard film <laughs> was 1 p.m. Which is only a 20 minute short. Yeah. But I was hanging out with D.A. Pennebaker and he said, you got to see this film. <laughs> and he put it on. He pulled it out of his vault and put it on. I watched it. And he started talking about Godard. And so that got me even more interested and excited. And he talked about one film that I have been unable to find or track down or even hear anything about. Uh, but basically, he described it as the whole film was just and it, it was probably a short, but it was just people's legs while they were having a conversation. So it was people sitting at a table and the shots were just of their legs. And it had played at a film festival. And the way Pennebaker described it is there was basically a riot in the theater. People, <laughs> <laughs> and people like were demanding their money back and screaming at the screen and just, you know, what is this nonsense? <laughs> and uh, so that w lent itself to my impression of Godard as this troublemaker and provocateur. He is. That is, he's a troublemaker. He is a troublemaker, and you see that right, you know, that's part of what he's doing right from the start in Breathless, is he's provoking the world of cinema. And he described his early films as being all about cinema, and that he sort of breaks out of that later on, but that his early films were about his love affair with cinema. And that love affair was not I think like a lot of the love affairs in his movies between uh, characters is that it's not just a pedestal kind of love affair where you just idolize the other person. There's a lot of complexity and this sort of love-hate thing and provoking them and teasing them and insulting them. And, you know, all of that happens in that, in that sequence in Breathless between uh, Gene Seberg and Belmondo where they're sort of needling each other. I love you. I don't love you. And you, and so I think that that was his complex relationship with cinema too. And so he is provoking the conversation. He's provoking other filmmakers. He really provoked Bergman. Bergman hated him. Yes, that's what I mean. <laughs> Bergman hated his movies. He said, I can only take about 20 minutes and then I have to walk out. <laughs> Breathless is talked about it in a certain way now, and it was talked about in a certain way, like when we were in, you know, film school in like the late eighties. Yeah. Uh, however, I was able to track down today the original Los Angeles Times review. Oh, cool! It, it like debuted, I think, in June of nineteen sixty one. That's when it got into America. And right? Yeah, that makes sense. Criticism, I think, has evolved a lot. Over the time, I mean, they, they, you'd be amazed at how many think pieces were not available back then. <laughs> and right, uh, yeah. they they made mention of how he was tearing up the rule book, but they were very fixated on the shocking sexuality. Right. As often the case, Jim is wrong with his facts. Here is the actual review from the LA Times, May 19th, 1961 by Philip K. Schur. Breathless lives up to title. J. 
John Paul Belmondo is the angry young man of breathless, a conscienceless infant terrible with a long face of Ferdinand, and the jiggling slide of Sammy Davis Jr., a cop killer, a thief, and a strutting rooster among pullets. His idol is Humphrey Bogart, and he ends up like the screen bad man shot down in the street. The at least half-willing partner of this sordid spree is Jean Seberg, an American girl of good family who sells the Paris edition of the Herald Tribune on the boulevards. Both are remarkably persuasive. The writer-director is Jean-Luc Godard, an ex-film critic who apparently decided either to throw away the book or to go back to the jerky flickers of a worn-out 1910 print. Working with a mobile hand camera, he has spurned lighting, scene matching, and even the most rudimentary continuity in an attempt to catch life at the moment of capricious truth. And amazingly, he often does. Out of the irrelevancies which a disciplined dramatist or cinematist would at once toss in the trash can, Godard has perversely salvaged a shocking study in degeneracy. Breathless is at the sunset and crest. I now return to conversation with Teal. And then I went and found the review. It opened up in April of that year in Boston, which is shocking that it wasn't banned in Boston because a lot of things were. And they were just, I mean, talk about conservative. They were just like, this is horrendous and and you'll be hard to sit through this. There's like, you know, boring (laughs) and plotless and it's cut because this person doesn't know how to make a movie. And then there's John (laughs) Belmondo. Why would anybody be interested in him? He's hideous looking. <laughs> and and then basically like labeling Gene Seberg as a tramp and that this is just like trash, but people probably want to see it for the trashiness of it. <laughs> so you oh, know that's that, fantastic. It's just like I, I just it's really interesting how we evaluate a film now and it gets a legendary status, but usually when the movie lands, it doesn't instantly have legendary status. And now As proof of Jim's comments, here is the original Boston Globe review of Breathless from April 27th, 1961 by Marjorie Adams. She played St. Joan, now she portrays a lover. Jean Seberg started out as a saint, but the young lady from Marshalltown, Iowa, is now in the Paris gutters. She was Joan of Arc in her first film, in the French avant-garde production, Breathless Jean is an immoral would-be news writer for the Paris Herald Tribune who betrays her vicious, erotic, murderous lover. The picture at the Capri has created considerable talk. This is not surprising, since the film itself depends on constant talk. Before the lovers indulge in embraces, they converse interminably. After Jean as Patricia Francini has telephoned the police to say where her boyfriend is hiding, she comes back to recommence the conversation with him as to whether she really has loved him or not. When he can escape in a fast car with a friend, he dawdles to continue the arguments. One figures that French hoodlums are not so fearful of cops as they are of silence. Even when he is dying, the young man has a few words to say. 
Most of the action, such as it is, takes place in the young woman's bedroom, where her sordid sweetie has holed up after killing a policeman. The romantic scenes leave little to the imagination. In this category, there is considerable going on, and realism is emphasized. But the plot is disjointed, and occasionally scenes seem to be misplaced. Perhaps this is part of the avant-garde system. Mood, not motive, is made the important quality of the production as a whole. I defy anyone who sees Breathless to be able to figure out some of the incidents and why they happened. Miss Seberg is the only actress in the cast familiar to local audiences. She has touching appeal in some scenes, but in others strives for hardiness and indifference. Perhaps a French actress might have been a bit more effective than the American girl. John Paul Belmondo, tall and unattractive, is not a customary leading player in such a story. It is difficult to figure out why a woman would sacrifice herself for him. He steals from his girlfriend's purses. He mugs men retiring to the gentleman's room. He steals an automobile, kills a policeman ruthlessly, and tells his pregnant girlfriend coldly that she should have been more careful when she confides he is to become a father. One scene was hard to understand. This horrid young man stands outside a film theater, gazing for some time at a poster of Humphrey Bogart, but his face expresses nothing. However, as a member of the audience, I suggest that hard-hitting Bogey made a far more impressive villain than does erotic Belmondo. And now, back to the podcast. Right, and I, it, I think there's a lot of films like that through cinema history that critics didn't know what to do with at first, and it was only upon further reflection that they kind of became classics, because now... Breathless is revered, you know, and in every Godard obituary, that was like the first movie they mentioned. Well, I think that's why also I'm like, boy, you know, are, are these reviewers, is that all they have? And I'm like, and I didn't even think it was that great. So I had to go back to it to understand. Yeah. And now I actually do think that it's a masterwork, but I do want to, you know, I mean, we're never going to get, <laughs> we're never going to get there very much here. Um, <laughs> there is a famous shot in Breathless. Um, that, again, one of the themes that you'll see throughout all of these movies, he loves to reference his own movies. Yes. Other actors, other Cahiers de Cinema yep. malcontents that went off to make films. He's constantly doing that. And he um, references other movies, and he's influenced by American cinema, obviously, because that was what was yeah. really the big thing. Uh, but he always, like a lot of his pals, they found interest in films that stretched the Hollywood conventions a little bit. Yes. And he takes a direct visual reference from one film called 40 Guns. Yes. By director Sam Fuller. And it just so happens that Criterion put on 40 Guns this month uh, in a little bit of an addition with a few extra bells and whistles to it. And I, you know, again, because I'm a glutton for punishment, I just, right. uh, I watched a few of these ancillary movies. I watched 40 Guns. Uh, so I could not only see the scene that it was referencing, but just what else was going on in, in a Sam Fuller movie, because um, he's always doing interesting things. And, uh, you know, it's a Western. And it's not my favorite genre. And it's definitely a little bit different. But man, there are a few moments that are not like anything you'll ever see in most movies. Right. Have you seen this 40 Guns? 
Yes. Oh, you had? Did you recently watch it? I saw it a while ago, and I recently rewatched some of it. <laughs> this guy has to go over and deliver a message to Barbara Stan- Stanwyck, and she's the big grand matron of this huge like yes. family and posse of uh, bad bad eggs there in uh, Arizona, and. He goes in and he's seen into this like uh, dining room and and you cut to a to a very close up of Barbara Stanwyck and I think it's her near duel brother. Then they cut back to him and the guy says, "Oh well, here you can go. You got to give this thing to her yourself or whatever." And then they cut to this insane deep focus long shot from where he stands to the end of the table. And it goes, I've actually counted. I had to stop and count. There are 28 people seated at this table and it goes all the way down. And it's amazing (laughs) how it shows you editing and also cinematography creates this impression without you saying how important she is. Right. Everything about the way this scene is shot tells you that and i was just like wow that 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 is really masterful and it's what i always argue that today a lot of films are shot two three five when there doesn't seem to be any reason there's no thought behind why the shots are the way they are or that i have this great long you know vista how am i going to use it and then you have directors like sam fuller figuring out how can i use what's going to be on the screen to tell you something about the story that the words aren't going to do and that's why i really that's what i really loved about Godard, especially the widescreen movies is that this guy didn't just say oh i felt like shooting widescreen he shot it with a purpose (laughs) yeah and sometimes you know there's shots where he has two characters as far on each side of the frame as he can get them. And that's probably, I feel like I would, what I remember about contempt. Yes. Yeah. He puts as much space between them as possible. And yeah, it's just fascinating. You know, like you said, using the frame in a particular way, you know, I'll keep coming back to this, but my first impression of Godard was this looseness and it's not as loose as it appears. One of the films that you saw earlier was this A Woman is a Woman. And you actually said, oh, you should see that one. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. I got all this other stuff to see. Um, and it was, you know, it's kind of like the next one up after uh, Breathless. And, you know, so I saw all these other things and I'm like, I just am not going to get to A Woman is a Woman uh, until I squeezed it in, of course, at the last minute. <laughs> <laughs> Are you glad you did? Oh, yeah, I, I did because, you know what? When we talk about Breathless as a movie that like, well, I've never seen anything like it. Well, because Breathless has been copied in many ways, whether it's right. the techniques and stuff it has. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like A Woman as a Woman. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, first of all, this is what I'm a sucker for, right? There's certain things that I just, they get me going. And here's what is amazing. Because you just wouldn't, in 1961, you're not going to find a a movie in color in America. It was shot in Eastman color, right? So it wasn't Technicolor. Yeah. It was Eastman color, which I love. It's kind of a, it, it's a dye transfer process that was similar. They don't, that does, they don't make it anymore, but Europe used it a lot. And I just, I yeah. love the colors of it. So this film takes this you know widescreen color but out onto the streets of Paris and there's something yes. that's so like lively and vital about seeing the streets and people and the way they were dressed in the cars when you see it in this kind of color yeah and uh, <laughs> it's almost hypnotic to me 
it, it is almost hypnotic. And he also, this, this movie has such control over color. And I think that's interesting coming off breathless that he really, you know, it's the red dress, it's the blue suit, it's the white backgrounds, and there's regular costume changes sort of depending on the mood. And, and he really uses color in a really expressive way to help tell the story and color almost becomes symbolic. And, and you see this in the later films too, that he keeps coming back to these reds and these whites and these blues. It's the colors of the French flag, right? Yes. And he, but they're so the choices, it's like, he's got to get that couch in that shade or that boat that's red and white or, and it's really specific color choices that are bold and really kind of hit you over the, or they, you know, that they're very noticeable. That's not, there's nothing subtle about it. Well, that's an, so then another thing, and this is, I think what finally got me over the edge that I had to go see this uh, woman as a woman movie when I was reading an interview with Raul Kotar, this is the film that was a big challenge that they had to solve because color oh, isn't the same as black yeah. and white. And this guy wasn't, he didn't, he hadn't shot a color movie before. And I think you see, you do see some, some technical flaws that sure need to be worked out, but you still didn't matter. So this is the one time, right? Cause he, now he had some, some notoriety, probably got a little bit of some money to make this film. So Breathless was kind of a hit, and he had some money going into the next film. Of course, naturally, it's oh well, we 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 you know should use uh, a soundstage in the studio, and so we're going to build you the apartment of Anna Karina and her uh, her boyfriend, right? Well, we're going to do that in, inside. Godard gets in there. And he's like, what? He's like, they're like, well, yeah, we're just going to like, when we go into the room, we just move this wall. He's like, but that, that, that wall would be there in real life. He's like, you don't move a wall. You got to have that. And then he's like, these overhead lights, what are we doing here? That, that's he's like, Anna Karina must be able to have an apartment with a ceiling because her character would feel that ceiling. And so <laughs> he's right. Raul Cotard's like, so they actually had to end up building a ceiling. And before you know it, they built an apartment and they still have all the things that they have to figure out. And then Godard, because Raul would just be frustrated and not be able to figure out how we're going to do this. And this is what Godard said to him. He says, you must rediscover how to do things simply. Yeah. Great quote. Yeah. And that's where it, it happened. And so after that, they never shot inside a soundstage again. You know, Godard's use of physical space in these, particularly in these apartments with these long scenes or sequences, there's, again, there's the, you know, man and woman in the apartment going on for 20 minutes scene in a woman as a woman. And it's so carefully blocked in terms of where they are in the space from moment to moment and how the camera follows them and there's no chaos at all it i mean it, it looks a little it looks almost improvisational but it's really planned out and it's blocked in in a way that is really cinematic it's not just two people sitting and talking to each other in shot reverse shot it really you know, sometimes the camera's not on the person who's talking or it'll move away from them or they'll get up and walk into another room and the other person will follow them. And so it's all really dynamic all the time. There's no master, medium, close up, 
and exactly and, and film the little things to, to to get around. Now that's where you know when they whenever someone cuts to like a close up of something. Well, instead of yes. doing that, that's where like he started to invent things like sounds or a card or yeah. an image of weird things or a title card. Yeah, he was fixing mistakes that would get made during these things because not only was all that have to be carefully blocked, but the actors were improvising what the scene was going to be at the same time. <laughs> yes. And so he was fixing mistakes, but it became part of the style and is part of what, you know, he's sort of constantly working with this theme of reality versus cinema and where that line is. And this goes back to what you were saying about it's a real apartment, not a soundstage. But at the same time, he'll have a character and he does this in A Woman as Woman. He'll, he'll break the fourth wall. Yeah, they'll constantly remind you that you're watching a movie by even saying something like like referencing that like it, what is this a comedy? Is this a drama? Or you yes, know. <laughs> are you in a film or a novel? <laughs> yeah. Which, by the way, can can I ask you a personal question? Yeah. When you and your wife have a fight, do you each go and grab books to insult each other through the book titles? That is such an amazing scene. <laughs> It is such an incredible scene. That they drag the lamp over and go get the book. Yes, they pull the. I, I kept thinking, how is the extension cord so long in this lamp? But it, it, what an incredible scene! I've you know I've not seen a scene like that before or since. There's something else though that happens. This is my favorite thing in the whole movie. I don't know if I did. I feel like in my conscience I'd seen this scene once before, but she's cooking like a late morning breakfast yes and oh with the, the thing with the egg yeah, so she gets a phone call which by the way like if this is like you know apartment life in 1960 you might not have a phone but your next door neighbor who happens to be a prostitute <laughs> right. which is a shocker for a uh a Godard movie prostitution i can't believe that you know women basically they wanted to be moms or the or prostitutes that was basically yes the jobs. and sometimes both yeah so so she has to go she's in the middle of this egg she flips the egg up in the air and then leaves and of course, the whole well, it sticks to the ce it sticks to the ceiling. So she just leaves, and the whole time I'm going, she just threw it up in the air. What, what is, what's going on? And then she just forgot about it. So she goes and gets the phone call from her next door neighbor, who happens to be a prostitute. Which is also amazing. Is the first time you meet her is another phone call, and a guy leaves the apartment. You think maybe it's her husband or something. It isn't yeah. until you see another guy leave that you're like, oh, I get it. <laughs> That's what's going on here. So she yeah. has this quick phone call, which is very similar because it's the two boyfriends that she's, you know, her love interest, and it's almost the same yeah. type of thing. She finishes the call, she, and this has to have been like, what, two minutes later, she walks back oh, in, yeah. and she just grabs her pan, and the egg falls down onto the pan. And I'm like, <laughs> so it's like, it doesn't make any sense that that, I mean, but it's just like, that's the absurdity. It was brilliant. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that. It's so great. Yeah. And so, I mean, this whole movie, I just find uh, the, the word that kept coming to mind was delightful. I'm delighted by this movie. It's funny. It's sad. The colors are amazing. It has those surreal little moments. The incredible scene where they are fighting by showing each other book titles. And then, you know, Belmondo being Belmondo. <laughs> that guy, I didn't know what, again, I, another guy that I had not really ever been exposed to very much. This guy is hilarious. <laughs> He is really funny. Yeah. Oh, my God. And then I love it out of nowhere. Again, this is that self-referential part. Belmondo's in one of these little cafes. And, you know, who shows up? But Jean Moreau. 
And he's yes. like asking her, oh, hey, so how's it going with Jules and Jim, which he was filming at the time. And she goes, so-so. <laughs> and then they follow that up right afterwards with Anna Karina talking to her friend about uh, Shoot the Piano Player. Yes. Which is another uh, film by the same director, his buddy, um, Truffaut. So <laughs> I, Truffaut. I just thought it was so great. And then also the music <laughs> in that movie is by the great yes. Michel Legrand. Um, who did tons and tons of scores for Jacques Demy, and he did uh, music for Vivre Sa Vie, and uh, he won Oscars for like the 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 lead song for um, the Thomas Crown Affair, and he was also nominated for that score. I love Michel Legrand, um, so it's just a treat to hear his music. And so, was this the last one you watched? A Woman Is a Woman. Yeah, you would think so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you snuck in another one Except at the last minute. Also, felt like I had to go back and rewatch Masculine Feminine to just remind myself: Did I ever <laughs> see this movie? And I'm pretty sure I have, but fell asleep. So I did watch that, and I think I know why. It really wasn't my favorite, even though there's some interesting right. things in there, like always. And most of it had to do with the way his overlapping use of sound or sound that sounds like a big noise in the scene, and you don't know what's going on, and then the camera moves over and then you understand where that sounds coming from and, and right. stuff like that but yeah a woman of a woman is a woman is a real treat but then here's what's amazing when you see these movies his color films 1960 feels like it could have been yesterday and yes. then he'll jump back and do a black and white movie and it feels like some old movie <laughs> right <laughs> absolutely yes you're absolutely right and but that said and I, I said this to you previously off the show, but all these these fourteen films in eight years that he did in the sixties, they all feel like they're they're related to each other. They have similar themes. They have uh, whether they're black and white or color. There's something going on similar in the cinematography. They feel like they're all a piece somehow, and that he's he's exploring these themes kind of over and over again, trying to get at something, trying to get at some truth and say something. And well, sometimes he was shooting them at the, almost at the same time. Like he would like get a bunch of funding and then he'd shoot a couple of movies. So there's probably some reasoning where some of it is like overlapping. So like, for instance, yeah, he shoots Perot Le Fou and then I think the next one he shot was the very little scene made in USA. And right. it like just from a from a color palette perspective and just a vibe, they feel like good companions, like they'd be a good double feature for people to watch. Yeah, and I haven't seen Made in USA. That's and here's the thing. I this <laughs> by no means a comprehensive a comprehensive look at, at Godard on my part. There's so many that I still want to see, and I'm really compelled to see them. I I, I know. I after this show, I still want to see like Le Chinois and uh, yeah. I want to see the Little Soldier. I started I, another one that I had started. I just was like, I only have a few minutes to do. I've, I've seen the first 15 minutes of uh, Les Cabarinas. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, that was another one. I think that was the one when they shot that, they couldn't use the film stock anymore. Um, it was like the last one. Or something. Okay. And, uh, I wanted yeah. to see how it looked. And it's, it's, it's interesting already. Um, so I, I definitely want to get back to that. The only one that I kind of didn't complete other than the image book, which was his last movie, which is just more visual things. And I, I got through 20 minutes of that. I got through the whole thing and I love it. You did. You went through the whole, you did see all of image book. 
Yes. All right. Well, I'll definitely finish that. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, it's a it's a whole again. It it completely makes you rethink movies, and it's about movies in a way. It's about how we see. It's uh, you didn't get to the part where there's clips from Sallow. There. <laughs> One thing that I saw in that that suddenly I'm like, oh my god, it's already come up a couple times in these movies that I watched is Johnny Guitar. Yes. And I'd never seen Johnny Guitar, and I'm like, I got to see Johnny Guitar. So as another side journey, I watched Nicholas Ray's Johnny Guitar, and that movie just blew me to the back wall of my couch. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. I don't know if you've gotten to rewatch it. I haven't gotten to a rewatch, but I you know, have seen it 20 years ago. I mean, something. look, if we had more time, which we don't, I would just go on about this movie, but now I understand why Godard liked it because it's just, this is where you're stuck in a studio system, even though at this point, whatever reason, Nicholas Ray was uh, working on a B movie for like Republic Pictures. And a lot of times Westerns were relegated to kind of the B picture. Yeah. And he turns this thing into this really subversive uh, movie. Um, and then just like everything from colors and costume designs and angles and the great kind of pulpy dialogue. And that's the one thing, I mean, I feel like there's some funny moments in all of these films, but I don't think the dialogue is necessarily the greatest part. And of course, it's hard. There's so much talking sometimes, and you have to read the subtitles. So that makes it a little difficult in these movies. Some of them, some of the movies I found quotable, and some of those quotes are quotes that he's taken from somewhere else. But as I was watching them, I, I did write down a few quotes here and there. Oh, good. I wish I had. I only started doing that. Like with a woman as a woman, I'm like, because uh, I was actually watching some of that on my computer and I could type up some stuff. Uh, some of the voiceover in a woman as a woman, there's a line at the beginning, because they love each other, it will all go wrong for Emil and Angela. <laughs> <laughs> like it, there's just a voiceover that tells, or no, it's a title card. It's not a voiceover. There's a title card that tells you that like towards the beginning of the film. <laughs> Yeah, Weekend's the one where it has my favorite line of all time. Um, <laughs> it's like out of all the movies I've ever seen, there's this one mo moment where the you know the couple are just this awful bourgeois couple that are up to no yeah. good, even though that plot is so secondary. And there's one, I mean, I can't even, Weekend is so hard to explain as a movie, but what, one of the car fires that they get out of, she... It was like, my Hermes bag. <laughs> my Hermes bag. It's so fantastic. Like, that's all that she was worried about. And then she sees the, these pants on this dead guy and takes his pants. Uh, I mean, it's. I feel like week, Weekend is way over the top, but there's just some sensational stuff in it that's like, you know, it, it, yes. if anything, you watch it not because you want a necessarily enjoyable experience. You watch it because it shows you possibilities that can happen in a movie that you may never have thought of. You know, if I'm recommending Godard to people, this is one that I recommend only after seeing a few others because... I wish I had seen some of the others first. <laughs> you did Weekend early Yeah, on, and then huh? afterwards I'm like realizing I see so much stuff that ended up kind of in Weekend in a different way that it, that it makes a lot more sense. Well, it's the final chapter of these 60s films, and it ends with a title card that says, End of Cinema. That, that I think, is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, too, because- Well, of course it is. Because at the title card says that it's Jean-Luc Cinema Godard. So it's almost like the end of himself. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and it was. It was the end of a chapter. It's the end of these 14 films, which I said are all part of a piece. And this is, this is the one he ends with, which ends with- 
<laughs> Cannibalism. And I felt like that stuff got a little over the top. Like, I mean, at some point, I think he that's where he was already starting to really experiment. And some of that experiment ends up like, and so, you know, talk about not seeing it in an order that made any sense. In film school, and it was during a particular class where I got to see this because uh, they were doing stuff on like uh, music and stuff. So Sympathy for the Devil, I watched and- I've seen this movie more than any of the other films. I've seen this movie like several right. times because it really fascinated me. And the reason it fascinated me with me is uh, the main chunk of the movie, which is broken up, of course, in a, in a god yeah. way, is the Rolling Stones in studio recording Beggar's Banquet. And it focuses on the genesis of Sympathy for the Devil. Yeah. And much like the way I love the Get Back series yes the peter peter jackson why i loved it and like why i didn't find even a single moment of that movie boring is to watch the genesis of how a song goes i got this idea and he takes it into the studio and then you watch it progress into a song that you know so well and the collaborative creative process and people just kind of randomly hitting the drums here a little guitar strum and it's kind of like oh that's interesting let's put that together with this and they're all kind of playing off each other in a really interesting way. Yeah, and then you get to see, like, when you when you hear the song, you know, everybody knows that song, but when you hear the, you know, doo yeah. and you actually get to see that, like, Marianne Faithful is in that group of people doing the hoo-hoo. Yes. Like, it's when you can actually put a visual to something that you've heard all your life, that's fascinating to me. And then, of course, it's broken up with more of these weird, like, Marxist <laughs> sections. And there's one part, though, that I and, – and I've always – I, I got to admit, uh, other than when I had to sit through it in film school, I'd always skip those parts. <laughs> but, right. but I But I did not this time. And what I was – one part that I it was fascinating a little bit, even though it's really kind of vulgar and offensive, is there's this bookstore and there's a guy – and he is reading, like at first you're like, oh, he's reading some book, right? While well, everybody's shopping for books. But he's reading from Mein Kampf. Yes. <laughs> and then as everybody makes their purchase, they have to go up to him and they have to sing Heil. And then walk out the bookstore. And like when you have like a little kid, you know, it's like, it's absurd. And you're like, I don't know what the point is of this. And then why is it in, in mixed in with this other stuff of the Rolling Stones? The Rolling Stones. And I actually think that he would have been better served. Like, I think he could have made a really great documentary if he had just done a full length thing on them kind of in the studio, kind of recording that album. Now, that obviously isn't what he's ever interested in, so much to the point that the producers were mad that he didn't really kind of showcase the song in its final form. (laughs) So they took it upon (laughs) themselves to add it to the end of the movie Kind of showing as if like this is the oh, recording. Is that of the what song. happened? Okay. You know what the story is, right? And so his premiere, he punched out the producer because <laughs> he was so mad that they messed up his movie. <laughs> so I love that. Well, and that's his first. That's his first film after Weekend. I know, and there's, and I feel like there's a couple of segments in it that I, again, and they're not my favorite, but I they make a lot more sense having just watched Weekend. And having that end of cinema thing, right? Yeah. Because it's sort of like he's he's abandoning – I feel like he sort of exhausted something he was trying to say. He kind of got to the end of it with Weekend. And I, I feel like that last act of Weekend where it kind of falls apart is – 
him sort of saying, yes, like narrative just disintegrates into savagery and cannibalism, like the whole thing kind of. And so, yes, it tries our patience as viewers and it feels kind of messy and it's all over the place. But there's this I think it's the last shot in weekend. There's this guy playing drums. Right. And this happens a few times in that in that final act where it seems like it's totally just improvised. The shots are not that interesting. It's just people in the woods. And you're like, well, this wasn't very well planned. He's just like letting chaos happen and filming it. And then suddenly it turns into a crane shot and you go, wait, he had this all planned. And now I'm going to completely just jump out because I could go back to something I completely forgot. In Breathless, this is another like a genius move. When Godard actually needs to finally move the plot along, he himself does it. So yes, th- so <laughs> the you know the the police are now on to John Belmondo somehow, and and his faces in the paper. There, him and um, Gene Seberg are out in the street in a car, and a guy on the street is looking at a paper and notices him, and then makes a phone call to police, and it's Godard himself. <laughs> Right. I just thought he's that was into, Yeah. Well, and he, I feel like he's constantly commenting on that need for plot in reality. Like, where are the limits and lengths of narrative in terms of forming our understanding of the world? And Weekend, he throws it all out the window. <laughs> yeah. Now, I mean, in one of the more successful films, it's still experiment, but I mean, it was really, I think it's just the compositions just grabbed me. And no matter what they were saying on screen, I just found so captivating was Perot LeFou. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I was sort of going along on my happy little Godard train, being delighted by things like uh, A Woman is a Woman and Weekend. And uh, you had said I, I really needed to see Pierre LeFou. And I, uh, I was emotionally caught up in this movie in a way that I maybe hadn't been with some of the others. And I fell for the love story. Oh, yeah. And, and I was devastated by the ending. I felt emotionally drained. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a light movie, but I felt emotionally drained by the end of this to the point where I had to take a day off from Godard because I was like, it, it's not that the movies are uh, boring or pretentious. It's that it was almost too much for me emotionally. And then the next one I watched immediately after that was I took a day off and then I watched Contempt. Oh, and I was like, oh. that, one's like a, that one's a slam because they had that, that famous 20 minute scene in the yes. together where they're just going at each other. Yeah. And I just, I, and, and the, you know, and then the ending, I just, I was so devastated by both these movies that I was, and, and that was unexpected for me that I would have that kind of emotional reaction and get that caught up in the characters and the story. And because some of his films are kind of clever and there's this intellectual angle to them. And that was something that Bergman criticized is that they're, you know, a little too, they're a little too clever at times and that creates a distance for the audience. But I was emotionally sucked into both of these movies and I was not expecting that from Perot LeFou from the beginning of the movie. It's kind of clever at the beginning. He's doing the, 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 the single color light in these, in the scene at this party scene at the beginning. I love that. 
I love it too. And then he does this thing that he does also in Breathless, but he, he does in a few different films where there's two people in a car having a conversation. Oh my God, and that like the, the, the fake lighting that kept on hitting their faces. Oh, oh, I love it. <laughs> um, but also he'll, he'll have two people in a car having a conversation and he'll keep the camera on one of them. And, and not show the other one at all. And it's such a great... I was thinking about... We had Kate Haight on the show years ago. Yeah. And I remember asking her, when do you know... If two people are... If you have a scene with two people having a conversation, when do you know to cut to the other person and cut back and forth between them? And she said, you cut when you want to know what the other person is feeling. So I was thinking about that during these scenes that I want to know what the other person is thinking or feeling and Godard doesn't give it to me. Yeah. That's sort of an expectation that we have with movies now that we'll get that back and forth in the shot reverse shot and he's not doing that. And so it throws off my understanding of visual language, what I've come to expect from it, what I want from it in a way that actually pulls me in more. It, it doesn't alienate me, even though, I mean, maybe in the first, if you just watch one of these movies, it might alienate you, but I end up getting sucked in because of it. Funny you just mentioned that thing, because now it gets my brain thinking, and he uses that technique in, uh, and of course, I just recently, I recently saw these was uh, Masculine Feminine, and then Made in the USA has that exact car thing that you're talking about, where yeah. the guy is maybe driving and Anna Karina is in the passenger seat, and you're really focused on her, which is another thing. I mean, you know, again, we mentioned this when we were first starting to discuss Godard like a couple episodes ago, but, you know, he, he really... The female gaze, I mean, he w yeah. is in love with the women that are in his movies. Yeah. His men are very brutish and very misogynistic, not always likable, but he just, his muses, I mean, Anna Karina, the, the, her, her ability to use her face to convey a range of emotions without saying yes. anything is just really tremendous. And she's funny. Oh, yeah. And you, that's the thing is, I, I mean, again, I don't know why I liked it and it's not really caught on, but probably because it wasn't seen in the United States until 2009. But this Made in USA is actually kind of funny. It's a detective story, an anti-detective story. Yeah, I mean, all his films are kind of anti-detective stories in a way. But she gets to be the detective and you don't see it yeah. very many. I'm trying to think of movies where a woman is the detective. So while we're on the subject, did you watch the Dick Cavett interview? I have not yet. Okay. So it's right after Every Man for Himself comes out. Okay. So I'm setting you up for Every Man for Himself. But Dick Cavett, it's really funny because Dick Cavett is very awkward in this interview. He seems a little intimidated by guitar. Um, but I understand that's also part of just his manner when he's doing interviews, but he asks about the critical response and that he had seen some negative reviews and Godard says, were the, were the critics men or women hmm. who gave it the negative reviews? And he says, because men, uh, or uh, Cavett's asking him about like people saying it's despair. The movie is just about despair. And Godard says, was it men or female or male critics saying that? And, you know, Cavett says, I don't know. And Godard says, well, Men find this movie is all about despair, but women don't 
because the women are all active and creative and have a full emotional range, and the men are all depressed and 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 despairing. And <laughs> and he's like, so men don't see it the same way. And then he says, you know, because women have better ideas, and the audience starts clapping, <laughs> cheering. And I know you haven't seen every man for himself. So, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but it really focuses on three characters, one man and two women. And it kind of, kind of breaks it, breaks it out sort of in chapters. They, they all intertwine the different characters. Um, and sometimes it's like with any Godard movie, it's hard to see where this is all going to go. Yeah. But in a weird way, I, I kind of feel like this is its own masterpiece. It's just, it is a weird movie. And it's Godard, but like you're seeing in 1980 and like film stocks look different and things have changed, but he hasn't, and he's still able to do some of his things, but he's, he's a little bit more grown up, but he's maybe just in a different phase, still self-reflexive, but he's doing some new techniques, techniques that nobody was doing at the time. And now I've seen it in works like from Wong Kar Wai. Right. He wants to stop time. And he does these moments where he, it's almost like he used a like computer or, or did it through video. He judders the motion. It's not like your typical slow motion of motion picture. Right. Yeah. He, it, it's, it's very jagged, but it, it creates this weird effect that like he's stopping on a moment as if like for whatever reason in this person's daily life, this image or this moment is going to stick in their brain. Exactly. Yeah. So he does these cool things that get you starting to think differently about whatever you're watching. But, you know, I was still wondering the big question, why was this movie rated X? This is probably the only film that I've watched where the reason it's rated X isn't for anything visual from like a nudity standpoint. Right. It's about things that are said in the movie. And- Interesting. At the beginning of Weekend, there's the monologue about the sexual experience slash dream. It's hard to know whether it really happened or not. And it's very graphic. And the reviews at the time all were a little bit, like you were saying, a little bit conservative about that scene and a little bit put off by it. It it, it warranted an X in this movie. Yeah. There's a very famous part now that I've learned, right, at the end of the film that uh, one, one character, of course, Isabella Huppert is a, is a prostitute. Really? Oh, yeah, You're I know, joking. I know. I know. A lot of advancements <laughs> were made in the 80s, but maybe not all advancements. And and one of the characters, she actually works uh, – she's worked alongside uh, the, the, the man character, uh, who's played by a, a famous uh, French singer, Jacques Toucan, and – yeah. He's playing a character much like basically in the vein of Godard with his last name is Godard. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and he looks like Godard and smokes the same cigar that Godard was smoking at the time. And uh, so that's how they had met. Uh, so she's like a video producer or something and she wants to be like a writer. So you know, she has different aspirations. But the Isabel Huppert character, um, who I think is the roommate of this other actress, she is a, a, a prostitute. And towards the latter part of the film, there's a scene where – she has kinky clientele. She's with another prostitute and they are very descriptive. There's one guy that are very descriptive of what he wants the scene to in- encounter. And I think that right. we've seen a lot of stuff visually um, over the years, probably through streaming television and things, but 
the nature of what he's talking about and describing and what you don't see on screen because of the way that Godard frames it, you right. as the audience visually imagine them doing all of the things that he's talking about. Right. And so he does again where he's he he creating pictures with words and wor- and words with you know voices and it's the scene the sound and listening to the pictures thing. It's so graphic I guess that that's what got it an X rating. But then there's something that happens earlier in the movie that I found is probably one of the most jaw-dropping shockers of my <laughs> Of my film watching, where, <laughs> which is saying a lot, you know, the, the, the number of movies we've watched. The Jock Dutronc character is picking up his daughter from her soccer game and is talking to like this male acquaintance who's waiting for his daughter, and they're having a conversation, and you know, it's in French, and I'm 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 kind of half paying attention, and yeah. then Jacques Dutronc's character—I don't even know how the lead-up happens. Again, I think as my mind went to blur, he he asks the guy if he's ever imagined having sex with his daughter from behind oh and i'm using God. very i'm using very nice language right. <laughs> you're toning it down <laughs> and 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 i'm and i mean i literally i think i just stopped the movie for a second to be like wait what did that really happen like, it, it, oh, it, 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 but what it does right it's so shocking but it it sets you into like what is the mind state of this character and now every other right. interaction afterwards you have this baggage with you that's sitting there oh that's cool and it really creates a power um and and and, because you because you're really stuck on what the hell was that about (laughs) like like what the frick (laughs) so again this whole movie like again it's like godard you know off doing things that no one else is doing and then of course at the very end of the movie much like every other movie it, it just ends and right you know like he just he finds clever ways to use fini in his, in his yes. End. Well, this one just ends like it just stopped. There's no credits, no any. It just stops. And I thought if I was that was the first one I had ever seen of his, I'd be like, "What the hell did I just watch?" But having seen all these other movies, I was like, "Oh, that's so classic Godard." Right, and and I think that's the thing with him is that once you get, it, it's not that he's an acquired taste so much as that you start to understand them when they're contextualized. You you gain a new appreciation because he is coming back to those themes. He's coming back to the car accident. He's coming back to the "Do you love me?" scene, sort of over and over again. And you know, there were. A few- I like how you just said that the "Do you love me?" scene because you're right. That comes up in so much of his work is that the 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 characters want to know. If A, are they yes. in love with them? Or B, I don't believe you. Or like, hey, are you still in yeah. love with me? And it's, it's a very fascinating that he has this argument over and over again. Yeah, and, and it is, it's exactly that argument. And it continues in sort of, I mean, even uh, Film Socialize Me has that. Did you watch, is, I, I know that sometimes you just gather glimpses of films. So did you watch those films in total or you just watch some of it i have not finished film socialize me because man it (laughs) this is one that i think roger ebert was like let me see if i can find the ebert review uh this film is an affront it is incoherent maddening deliberately opaque and heedless of the ways in which people watch movies (laughs) <laughs> and Robert Ebert's review. Of, and so because of that review, I was like, I got to check out this movie. And, you know, what's interesting is we, we were talking about film stocks earlier. He uses just about every kind of camera and stock 
he uses like high def uh, digital. He uses what looks like a phone camera. He uses like VHS that looks like it's been copied repeatedly <laughs> until the image breaks down. And it just sort of cuts between these. And then there's, of course, his shots of the ocean. He loves, I mean, the whole movie, it, it takes place on a, on a cruise ship, but he loves those shots of the ocean. They, that's another recurring image. So you know that that was there were two films that I didn't that I didn't finish, and I don't know if I will. And I think that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and film socialized me is one, and the other is Germany year ninety nine zero, which I know the reason you took a peek at it is because. I don't know if it's not really a direct sequel, but he uses the main character from Alphaville years later, and he's in that movie. So I thought that's interesting. And and yeah, so I started watching it immediately after Alphaville, and uh, it uh, it's not my favorite. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I mean, unfortunately, this is how crazy like this time just flew, and we could talk more. We didn't even talk yeah. about some of like the the key films like uh, Band of Outsiders and no, I didn't and. Get to that. <laughs> And Vivre Savi, which that's what, so what started me on this was that when he died, somebody, I think it was Edgar Wright, the director, had posted a little clip from YouTube. He says, boy, when I need cheering up, I watch this. And it was the famous uh, Madison Dance sequence from Band of Outsiders. Yeah. And I actually do think that that's probably the best part of that movie, but it's great when you see the entire lead up to it. Yeah. It is. And it's just like all of these movies well, I don't think they're going to be everybody's taste, and some people might be like, "Oh, that was horrible." I get it, and I'd be fine with it. But yeah, like there are moments that he captures, and I almost think that sometimes he'll make a whole film to see if he can get a few of these moments that are just unforgettable. And that also yeah. happens in Viva Savi. He does a couple things there. Did you get to watch Viva Savi? Oh, you know, it starts in a cafe, and there's this long conversation, and. Anna Karina is, is there and it's all filmed from directly behind and he like he won't let the audience see her face. You have to wait for it. <laughs> <laughs> he does that repeat. I mean, that's the same thing we were talking about with the car scene yeah. where it's on one character. What you want to have happen as an audience, he doesn't give it to you, which creates he doesn't give it to you tension. And you're getting so, you're getting yes, it creates tension, and you're getting something else. And then you have to ask, why do I want that other thing? What what is it about me that needs to see her face? It creates this new experience where these people are having a conversation and. Now you're really focused on the fact that you can't see their faces. Right. And you're forced to focus on other things, like maybe what they're saying. So you're going to have to watch this Made in USA because there's just some wacky moments in it that I don't, can't really describe because you haven't seen it. But I just got a feeling after all of this that you're going to find it amusing, that movie. Yeah. if uh, And, you know, if we had another week, I would have just kept watching. <laughs> I know. And I'm kind of glad we didn't because, you know, I mean, we go on these missions and I really do go, all right, up to the last second. I mean, I finished- Masculine feminine about an hour before we start taping. <laughs> <laughs> the other movie that I just want to mention briefly. Yeah, because then just it's, it's it overtime, the baby. That Ebert review got me to read Film Socialize Me, and it was the Pope's review of Hail Mary <laughs> that got me to watch that. Yeah, no Immaculate Conception unless it's the original. 
No, they yeah. don't like that. Did you did you see it? Did you I see did, it? You know, it was definitely on my uh, short list uh, that I did want to watch, but I finally decided that since I can't watch, I didn't want to jump. I was like, I'm going to stay in the yeah. 60s now. I saw Every Man for Himself because I really wanted to see that, but I'm going to just go and try to round out. Yeah, I wanted to check out the 80s. And, the, you know, because of the Pope, I was expecting a, a shocking, provocative uh, film with lots. And it's actually on Wikipedia. It's referred to as an erotic drama. Oh, I remember it being very controversial as a teenager. Very controversial. And I have to say, there is nothing controversial yeah, about this movie. I didn't think so. There, There's a lot of nudity, but none of it is sexual. Is it good though? Is the movie good? It's not my favorite. It's it's pretty good. I actually found it kind of uh, chaste and oh, and actually, you know, despite what the Pope says, I find like it's actually a good retelling that is somewhat reverent of the biblical story of the virgin birth. And uh, it, it's not. I was expecting like a tear down, you know attack on that story and it's not that at all i think it's probably like if tarantino decided he wanted to do a bible story it would be controversial no matter what you know what i mean and this is controversial just because it's a bible story but i actually found it to be really respectful of the source and really kind of an interesting modern day take on it and what i found really interesting is he takes the idea of the virgin birth and applies it to the origin of life in the universe. Oh, wow. Was there evolution? Were we created? Were we seeded by aliens? <laughs> that, yes. that, 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 I don't think the Catholics would have liked that, but <laughs> no, they wouldn't have. But anyhow, it's, uh, it, so it's an interesting film. It's really short and, uh, you know, it's, I got a little bored with it at times, but so it, it's not high on my list, but I'm glad I watched it. Like, most of his films, I'm glad I watched it, even uh, Image Book and Goodbye to Language. Hey, and you know what, uh, folks out there, just like a Godard movie, you may want more, <laughs> but we're not giving any more. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> End of cinema. End of cinema. <laughs>